0: Take your Bibles, if you would, and let's look at the 18th chapter of Luke. 18th chapter of Luke, as we know, we've been in the life of Christ, and we come now to another great part of the dialogue that Jesus is having with his disciples. I like to think of these texts as crucial recalibrations for us. Just by way of analogy, you know when a marathoner is running the 26-miler, every marathoner will tell you that at some point long about the 15th to the 17th mile, they hit a wall. Athletes will tell you about it, particularly those that go massive distances like that. They kind of hit a wall and their body and their psyche and their emotions and all of their nervous system starts to pile in on itself and shut down. And there's there's a choice to make for those that run long distances. And they often talk about the choice you have to make somewhere around that point, that mile marker. The choice you have to make is to push through it, knowing what athletes know who, who push through whatever it is they're experiencing and beginning to have the temptation to shut down. They know that when they push through that and make that choice, they force themselves past a threshold after which the body reacts to it. We have particular glands within us, hypothalamus gland, pituitary gland. They begin to release things that we call endorphins. And endorphins are a part of that nervous system that, that give us a sense of strength or endurance, or we might call it sort of the happy euphoria that comes over the psyche and the emotions and the mental makeup in that moment. These are part of what God has given us, sometimes called the feel-good chemicals, because they relieve pain to some degree in that moment, and they boost energy. We sometimes call it a second wind. If an athlete in a marathon pushes through that, they will suddenly feel that endorphin rush, that push. When I come to certain texts of Scripture, they're so massive in in the recalibration point, in the principle being presented, that it is, in some sense, like an injection of adrenaline, or, to use the analogy that I gave, it's sort of the endorphin, the spiritual endorphin of a Christian's life that pushes him past the temptation to shut down when everything is so desperately needed to be summoned in that moment. But he has nothing left to summon. Sometimes in Jesus' ministry, he would speak to his disciples and he would give these direct moments and instruction because he knew we would face those times where stamina is weak and spiritual courage is getting set aside for temporary relief. God knew that when he saved us, when he redeemed when the new covenant was ratified, when Christ went to heaven and sent His Holy Spirit, God knew how much time that He would be allowing on this earth in the time and space continuum to go by, and He knew how many generations He would be saving still, and and is yet still saving. He knew that, and though He told every generation, "Be ready," He He minced no words when it came to the need for. Stamina for spiritual adrenaline because we would tend to walk off, to give up. He would tend to do that. He knew that if we lived our life faithfully while Christ was waiting to return we would be thinking about the reversal of all things and yet longing for it. You remember back in chapter 17, verse 22, he said you're going to long for days of the Son of Man. You're going to long for it. There's going to be times where you're wondering and waiting. And we are in that time when God is waiting to return. And he's waiting to set up his kingdom where righteousness dwells, as I read about. And we're waiting for the full redemption of what began when we were regenerated. And now we have unredeemed humanity that needs to match our inside. We want to put on immortality. And so we regularly are tempted to lose our foundation. And some passages are just so straight at it in so simple a way that it is a massive injection of what we desperately need. It is the spiritual courage, the spiritual endorphin, the adrenaline, if you will, that is so needed for us to stay on track notice in fact he says in verse one he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart they ought to pray and not to lose heart that is the heart of the matter said right up front as luke records it he was telling them a parable that was intended to do this very thing it is to be the endorphin you're to push past because of what he's about to illustrate And push past in what way? That at all times, you ought to be asking God to bring about what this parable illustrates and what I was just reading from Revelation. This isn't prayer in general, although that's included. It's prayer for the consummation of all things. Prayer for the coming of Christ. Prayer primarily for the justice and righteousness that God promises. Bring it. Bring it now. Bring it when you purpose. Bring it fully. Bring it definitively. Bring it as you promised it. At all times, we ought to be praying that. And in praying it, not losing courage. Not losing courage. That's the heart of the matter, and it comes right up front in the text. This is the infusion of spiritual adrenaline for God's people. And he opens it up, telling them this parable. Follow along as I read verses 1 through 8. He was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart, saying this. In a certain city, there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect men. And there was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him, saying, give me legal protection from my opponent. For a while, he was unwilling. But afterward, he said to himself, even though I do not fear God nor respect men, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge said. And now, will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So now we know the heart of the matter, the heart of the matter is God wants us to put our head down, to keep walking, to take another step of faith, to not succumb to the lack of spiritual courage or conviction, and to do it through this constant pleading day and night with God to come, to bring it, to bring it as he's promised, not to bring it when I want it, not to bring it the way I want it, not to change my circumstances here and now, but to bring it as he promised. In every way and in all the timing and the circumstances that he chooses. Why? Because as this parable will illustrate, he is God. And if you can understand a human relationship dynamic that he's about to describe, then certainly by contrast, you ought to be able to understand the polar opposite, which is God himself. This is a story of polar opposites. It's a contrast between a godless, cruel authority figure who cares nothing for someone within his responsibility. It's a contrast between that and the intense devotion of God toward us, his beloved redeemed people. And so this is the point of the source of our adrenaline right here, a contrast between something we can understand in human life and yet the effect it can have And by contrast, how much more? It's an argument from lesser to greater. It's an argument from something as mundane as a human relationship struggle, which has an influence, to the greatest promise of all from the one who cannot lie. It is polar opposites. And this is a tale of how a cruel human magistrate is brought to his knees by a a destitute widow Someone he cares nothing about, but he's forced to respond in some way. And so because Luke has already given us the heart of the matter up front, now the reason he tells this parable is blatantly obvious. He's strengthening our courage in light of the way God sees us. And in light of the way, he promises a meticulous care for us. So let's see how this unfolds. We've seen the heart of the matter Now Luke tells us about the heart of God for his own people, the heart of God for his own people. And we begin with the parable, beginning here with the immoral judge. If you're keeping an outline, you can mark that down, the immoral judge. In a certain city, there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. Now, a parable like this you can read over very quickly and at first glance this verse here seems simple enough to understand. Jesus is portraying a judge here who's completely adulterating his God-ordained role for the good of society. From top to bottom, we know from the scriptures that God has ordained authorities for the upholding of equity between human beings. Because of sin, God has ordained governments and though they be led by sinful people, they are ordained by God to honor society, to strengthen society and community, if, in fact, they honor his purpose in giving them. What is his purpose? Romans 13 tells us to punish evildoers in their breaking of the law and to reward those who uphold the law by submitting to it. So even though ordained governments by God are imperfect, and will be at times mistaken when they're applying the principles of law to, and justice. They're still given by God for society to punish lawbreakers and reward those who follow the law. <clears throat> but here's the deal. Judges are to be fair. They are to rightly bring lawbreakers to face punishment. They are to uphold the laws that protect victims. And especially those punishments commensurate with the level of law breaking that victimizes someone. They're to uphold sort of a crime fits the punishment, vice versa kind of deal. And they are to enforce laws that that not only do all that, but that care for the needy and the destitute who could be easily taken advantage of by heartless and cruel people in society. That is what a judge is to do, to be fair, to rightly bring lawbreakers to face punishment, to uphold laws for the protection of victims, to enforce those laws that that will care for the needy and the destitute, so they're not taken advantage of. And whenever a judge was inequitable, Whenever he was inequitable, the society went downward. Over time, God did not honor the strength of that society, but began to let it run its course. The opposite is also true. Whenever judges were equitable, pagan or not, whenever they rewarded lawful behavior and punished the lawless, God honored their influence in that society. And this has been, by the way, the expression of God's common grace in society since sin entered the world. And there were times, even in the nation of God's people, Israel, when God would spend entire prophetic messages indicting them for this very thing. Yes, they were indicted for idolatry and worshiping on the high places and pagan interrelations and all those things. But one of the most scathing rebukes through prophets came on this principal issue. Inequity and corruption at the authoritative level. Prophet Amos, chapter 5, he said this very thing because you impose a heavy rent on the poor and exact a tribute of grain from them, though you've built houses of well hewn stone, you'll not live in them. Because I know your transgressions are many and your sins are great. And you turn aside the poor in the gate and accept bribes and distress the righteous. Seek good and not evil, the prophets warned, that you may live. And thus may the Lord God of hosts be with you just as you've promised or proclaimed or boasted about. Hate evil, love good, and establish justice in the gate. Listen, the laws of a country are supposed to do that. And when they don't, we're to pray for that so that the society can flourish under God. We're actually to speak to the conscience of culture on those issues. Don't take up a culture war. You speak to the conscience of the culture from God's word, whether they laugh you out of the palace or not. But here is a familiar sort of a picture of a judge. It was, it was common in that day to have corrupt judges. So he may be fictitious, but he's not unfamiliar to people in their minds. And notice that Jesus describes him as godless and proud of it. Notice, he did not fear God, and he did not respect man. And if you look at verse 4, he actually says it. He knows it. He acknowledges it. Even though I do not fear God nor respect man. So he's godless, and he's proud of it. To not fear God would have meant that as a judge, he would have abused all of his authority. So in one sense, we would say he was capricious. He made decisions depending on how he felt in the moment. Certainly self-serving, whatever gained him more power and reputation. He's arrogant because he sort of brags about this autonomous or so-called autonomous position he seems to think he has. He's clearly dishonest or he would be equitable. No doubt manipulative in his jurisprudence. Certainly greedy as backhanded channels of money came his way. He's godless like that. And it says he doesn't respect men. You know what that means? That's, that's a word that means he's without shame, essentially. He's shameless in it. Cruel and shameless about it. And callous. This judge is perverted in his authority. Inequitable, cruel, and he's proud of it. Even though I don't fear God and respect man. He admits it. Jesus says in the story. That's the immoral judge. And he is encountered by, if you're keeping an outline, the incessant widow. The incessant widow. Verse 3, there was a widow in that city. And she kept coming to him, saying... Give me legal protection from my opponent. Do the right thing. Do the just thing. Give me justice. Give me vindication, you might say, as some translations might put it. Now, she is a widow, so the picture Jesus portrays here is a destitute woman. She's the quintessential picture of exactly the kind of life that the laws of society are supposed to help and protect, She's a widow. In the ancient context, she'd be considered doomed to poverty. And the older she got, she might not be killed for speaking out. Older women might, women weren't very respected in the ancient Asian culture, Oriental uh, or Arab cultures, but at the same time, as they got older, they were matriarchal, they finished raising their kids, and so there was a measure of uh, freedom to say what you wanted to say. But nobody listened, nobody cared. Just go about your thing. Say what you want to say. They were very much discarded as to what they said, but nonetheless, they weren't weren't, uh, removed from society for saying it. They were like matriarchs. They were mothers. They were the motherly type, the older gals, etc. And the picture here is of, of a widow who's concerned who's doomed to poverty, and she alone is coming to the judge. Clearly in the the imagery, she has no family to come to the judge and help her. No male leadership, no distant cousin, no brother or relative that can come help her. She's without any assistance. And so the idea here is she is destitute and vulnerable. She's in a situation where she is prey to every wolf that's lurking in the shadows And notice her desperation. She's desperate. She kept coming to him saying, give me legal protection from my opponent. This is absolutely amazing the way Jesus tells the story. (laughs) She has an opponent? I mean, are you kidding me? She's got nothing. What harm can she do? Who is the guy that's going after her? Her opponent has leveled some charge against her that, that now drags her into the courts. Really? you got to be kidding me. Can't you just leave her alone? You know, help her? What, what trouble is she? Clearly she has no financial means to plead her case in court with an advocate. There's no advocate by her side, no attorney, if you will, to put it in contemporary parlance. She, she has no one to make her case but her. No financial means to buy some help. And no doubt, she is up against someone who's obviously wanting to ruin her, because that's what you would do with someone so vulnerable, so without means and resources. You must want to absolutely take her last bit of hope and strip it from her and just trample her in the ground. That's the idea. It's worse than that. She obviously knows, according to the story, that the judge in the case has no regard for people and their circumstances, he has no sympathy, no compassion, no concern for her situation. She knows that. In fact, though she appeals for legal protection, she appeals to the law. Please vindicate me. She's appealing to a known law or a set of laws that ought to protect her. Even though she appeals for legal protection, she already knows that this is a corrupt judge. So what does he care about upholding some law that will protect her? He doesn't care about that. So in the story, Jesus leaves us with a picture of a widow who is destitute and desperate and has one possible avenue. One, just one. Her only hope is to badger this guy incessantly and do it every day, all day, at all times that she can find a way enough that he either yields... Or eliminates her, you know, kills her. Either way, she gets relief (laughs) because her opponent is coming after to take her last, whatever resource she has, and she knows I've only got one shot at this. He doesn't really respect my circumstances or have sympathy for it. He doesn't care about the law protecting me, so I've got to find some other way to literally come at him until he either takes me out and gives me relief or does something about it. Wow, that's amazing. That's great staging for verse 5. The intimidated surrender. <laughs> so, even though I do not fear God nor respect men. Verse 4 says. In fact, it says while he was unwilling. <laughs> so for a long time she was coming and he just mm, took his heels in. He was going to be as callous as he promises. And even though I do not fear God nor respect man, verse 5, yet because this woman, this widow, bothers me, you might translate it, absolutely relentlessly keeps coming at me. Because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. In other words, I'll grant the vindication legally or the just protection. Otherwise, by continually coming to me, she will wear me out. Now, Jesus doesn't present any of her words in this wonderful little story. We're not given a dialogue here. We're we're not given any of the specifics of her complaints or her reasons. Even her presentations to the judge are not explained. You know, I'm thinking at the time, you know, I'm studying it, whatever a destitute widow could or would say to present her situation and call for legal protection, Jesus says that it wasn't the content of what she said or even her appeal perhaps to the law. It was the relentlessness of her coming that brought this judge to a change that influenced him. So we can surmise she probably every day did what she could to to make her appeals. So I'm sure she, as the imagery goes in the minds of the hearers, she would be presenting evidence that exposed the cruelty and greed of the opponent. Otherwise, the judge could not vindicate her. In other words, when he protects her with legal means, there would have to be a way to silence the opponent. So clearly she had a case. She had some sort of case. She just knew the judge couldn't care less about it. So she probably came and presented whatever evidence she had. She probably continually pointed out the judge's indifference, exposing him potentially to the charge in the community that he's not just. You say, well, what does he care about that? Well, at some point he must have cared about that because he relented. At some point his society needs to stay somewhat uh, below anarchy so that he can still get his money and his living and his power and his status. If it all turns into anarchy... Because everything's corrupt, and he loses both ways. So at some point, there's a, there's a break point, even though he doesn't have respect for God or man. So she probably pointed out that your indifference exposes that the kind of injustice that's going to destroy society itself, let alone what you think about me. In the ancient context, she might have even demonstrated her life as truly helpless without something being done by the judge's authority. Look, if you, if you leave me like this, I know you don't care about me, but if you leave me like this, you know, in the end, then forget about the laws. Who cares? Just take them off the books. If they're meant to protect someone like me. She might have even voiced public perception and consequences for ignoring the law. Whatever the widow may say in that kind of case, and you could probably outline a host of details that may have been in a story like this. It's a fictitious story to illustrate not that, but the other issue. Jesus says it was the fact that the judge knew she absolutely would not stop until he caved in. She will wear me out. (laughs) Some of your translations say it's, it's an idiom. In the ancient language, an idiomatic phrase. It basically could be translated, she will pummel me until I'm knocked out. That would be about the most specific way to translate the the idiom. She will punch me until I'm knocked out flat. Now, some people at this point would say, "Well, that's such a great story. maybe, Maybe the judge is like an analogy for God, and then if we just... Keep going back and forth to God. He'll finally give in and give us what... Listen, that is not the point of the parable. See what's the point of the parable? Well, there's a comparison here to be made. And it is invigorating. It is adrenaline. It is spiritual endorphin to our souls. Notice the invigorating comparison in verse 6. And the Lord said, Luke separates it out and, and puts the phrase on the front of it. This is what the Lord said about this hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now, there's your first instruction with regard to the parable. Ponder the case of this judge so that you don't miss the weight of the contrast that Jesus is pointing out. You know, just as a footnote, sometimes we can, we can become shallow in our understanding of truth because we, we fail to take into to account the the details of a passage, because we, we sort of sweep over the simplicity of it in English, and, and that's fine. But if you even think about your English translation, if you don't ever go any, any past that in some electronic Bible program or whatever, still pondering the things that are said in scripture and why they're here, instead of reading over it quickly, is how you begin to, to see the Spirit of God illumine the implications of a passage to you. Here's a passage where you could, you could sort of make superficial assessments. You read over it quickly, and while you're reading it, you know, someone calls, and then there's a distraction in a text, or you, moms, your kids are acting up, or some, some other distraction in the context. And then you come back to it, and you just read it, and you say, Ah, I see. I see this widow's persistence got her what she wanted. Hmm. Perhaps I should keep praying for God, to God for strength and courage to continue, and just by my badgering him, he'll give it to me. Beloved, listen, even Jesus right here and now reminds us to take a closer look. Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Yeah, the passage teaches us to be persistent in prayer. He says we ought at all times pray. And yes, it is a caution about losing heart. But more importantly, it is a contrast between an unrighteous human judge and God who is completely the opposite. Listen, you don't have to solve human struggle and weariness and lack of courage by by some human means, by a change of your circumstances, by some earthly solution. No, that isn't how you inject adrenaline spiritually into your perspective. Not at all. You know how you inject it into your perspective so that the endorphins fire off? You give yourself a robust view of God as in contrast to the way human beings live and work and our understanding of human life. You rise above your human circumstances and above the way you're treated and above what's going on in the culture and outside of all the conclusions you might draw in fear and because of persecution and the things you don't like that are happening and the apostasy and our nation going downhill. You are to rise above all of that. That's his point. Look, even in the human realm, a guy who doesn't care about the the least valued in society will even move when it won't end. You say, well, is that what God is like? No, God is completely the opposite. He's listening every day, all day, never unwilling, always on for his elect, always thinking justice, always equity on the record books. You say, well, when does that come for me? Oh, listen. Jesus, in this contrast, tells us that it comes quickly. You say, well, Pastor, it doesn't seem like it. Yeah, you know why? Because you drift into an earthly view of things. We drift into an earthly view of things. That's why we lose courage. That's why we stop praying for his second coming. Because we actually don't think when his second coming happens that there's going to be justice and equity and righteousness for all that's been done oh no we don't think that at all in fact you know what we would like we would like some temporary relief right now and exchange that for the justice that's to come in eternity we would we're tempted to want some temporary change in our life and circumstances here rather than believe that when we get there this promise is going to explode into eternity on our lives Jesus wants us to ponder what the unrighteous judge said. And then he says, now, verse 7, will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? Is he going to be unwilling? Is he going to be slow? I tell you, that's a a formal, emphatic phrase. I tell you, he will bring about justice for them. Notice, quickly. Quickly. How much opposite is it, Jesus says, when our Heavenly Father hears our pleas day and night for the spiritual strength, courage, the spiritual endorphins to go another mile. And notice what it says about God. He will bring about justice. Man, if we could remember that. In each moment, when you're most frightened, most weary, we, we studied it in Luke 12, verse 2. There is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Nothing. Instead of the illusion that people have in our culture and in the wicked world around us that things are done in hiddenness, we must know, Jesus says, that there isn't a single moment in any human being's life all throughout history that will escape the final scrutiny of the omniscient creator of all things. He is sovereign, he's pure, he's precise, he is perfect clarity, he's infallibility, he is truthfulness, he's righteous justice, he's ultimate power. And he is majestic glory. And it will be displayed perfectly. His very nature demands that everything be evident, wide open, completely exposed for what it is. That is our God. That is An injection of divine adrenaline, divine adrenaline. That is what we need in the moment. Jesus says he will bring about justice. You don't need it here. You don't need that here. So what if you're able to to have a culture war and temporarily change people's mind about things? Corrupt hearts have to be changed by the gospel. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You want to make a difference on some practical societal level in the common grace of God? Man, you go do it. You make laws. You vote for those representatives. You become a representative voted for. You have integrity. You speak to the conscience of the culture. You be bold. But don't think that you're going to amass human weapons and human resources to effect any serious, significant justice at all in the end. God is the God of justice. And he says he will bring it about. And I would love it if our country upheld good laws all the time. I would love that. We've had some seasons in our culture and a few other cultures have had those seasons and in history of mankind there have been some empires that have had some of those seasons in history do you know what as Oz guinness said the only way for a free people's society to survive is for there to be laws that good leaders and authorities uphold where they punish evil doers and reward righteousness and then the conscience that has a moral code on it that people hold to A free society can only operate on those two principles. The only other kind of freedom that will guarantee righteousness is a kingdom ruled by a benevolent dictator, Jesus Christ, and hearts are completely changed. Prior to that, a free people's society will always kill itself because it will not create laws that protect. It will corrupt those laws and a moral code on the conscience. Are you kidding? Look how fast and how few decades that has been gone in our country. God says nothing's ever been done that won't be revealed. If not in this life, certainly on the day God is fixed to judge all human beings, Acts 17, 31. His perfect, just righteousness, his omniscient character is recording every single response of the heart and life to every exposure to the truth. And, And I'll tell you what, it is a promise that gives the believer confidence and courage, Jesus says you've been trying to get confidence and courage by coping skills and just, man, I just get, want relief temporary earthly relief trusting in human weapons to fight cultural battles you're, a, you're on a dead end road. Here is the promise that injects the endorphins into us will not God bring about justice for his elect? Do you say to that you're a liar, God is that what you say to it in the moment? My kids aren't what they need to be. My family's not what it needs to be. My work and job isn't what it needs to be. My home isn't what it needs to be. And and after all, everything got destroyed by a calamity. And after all, people are against us. And Christians aren't going to have any more freedom to speak and worship. Jesus says, will he not bring about justice? That's adrenaline. That's courage. And then he says, he hears his elect. His elect cry out to him day and night. And will he delay long over them? Are you kidding? These are his elect. I mean, that just absolutely becomes an anvil for me in my faith. All the cries of all the saints throughout all the ages of history of the redeemed have been rising to God's throne. He hears every single one of them. He marks every one of my sorrows, every burden, and every care in question and he knows intimately every perplexed thought and every frail hour of my day. He listens with infinite love and care to every wordless tear wept in his presence. He listens. And he is meticulously concerned with every anxious notion and every petition that I clumsily lay at his feet And listen, beloved, he has not missed a single thought, word, or heartfelt expression you've ever poured out to him. Not one. And he's acting swiftly. He says he'll bring it about quickly. You say, well, it's sure been a long time. That's because you're praying for the wrong thing. You ought to be praying, even so, come, Lord Jesus, bring your righteousness, bring your kingdom. Don't relieve my life right now. I, I know this is a corrupt world. This is not my home. I understand that. I'll serve with whatever resources you give. You can give and take away. Blessed be your name. But I'm waiting for you to come. And when you come, your righteousness is going to prevail. Bring that, Lord Jesus. I know you're bringing it quickly because the day is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. Psalm 90 talks about the transitoriness of man and just like the floodwaters go over in a in a waterfall, and you watch it, and there it goes, and it's gone. You put a stick in it, it's gone. Life is that fast. Human life, compared to eternity, is, as the Bible describes it, a what? It's a vapor. So what's your life? Your life's not a vapor. You're a vapor within a vapor. You're the vapor in the human existence that is a vapor, compared with eternity. Listen, God is saving. God is patient. God lets evil run its course. We're not to lose heart or lose courage, and Jesus knew we would. And so he tells this parable to say, look, even human beings in their most corrupt state and some other valueless person coming to them again and again all day, even the human being says, I want relief from this person. Look, even you can understand that from a human perspective. But let me tell you, God is so far different He's not unwilling. You don't have to badger him. He, you're his elect. You're his family. He loves you. Your name is written down. He is caring for every need, every word, every prayer. And so Jesus says you ought to pray and don't lose courage on this basis. The heart of the matter is what you ought to be doing. is putting your head down and pressing forward in new spiritual adrenaline because of the heart of God for his own. You say, what do I need to do? Well, what's the heart of the need? Well, Jesus tells us, verse eight. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Or literally, will he find this faith, the faith that he's been talking about, faith that, that carries on, faith that presses on, faith that prays for his second coming, prays, faith that believes in his second coming, actually loves his second coming, knows it's going to happen, and doesn't lose courage in light of his second coming. That faith, when he comes, is that what he's going to find? This is not a This is not a hopeless question that, gee whiz, in in the weakness of our humanity, he'll not find any of it for sure. No, no, no. This is a two-edged sword. On the one side, the blade cuts by warning us, hey, what are you doing? Are you living with courage, by faith, so that when he returns, your head is down, you're plowing forward, and then you meet him? The other side of the sword is God preserves his people. There will be the persevering. There will be his elect. There will be his children. They will make it. They will believe. They will have courage. It's two-sided, two-edged. You see, he knew. He knew that every day, Notice the elect cry to him day and night. What does that tell you? We need him day and night. We need prayer for a second coming day and night. We need recalibration day and night. We need new spiritual endorphins day and night. We need this. And when we go to him, we are confident that unlike the wicked judge, he is a righteous judge. And he will bring justice swiftly for his elect. We might be in for some very difficult days, beloved. Days we've never experienced in our country. Days where our children and grandchildren are seriously threatened or jailed or even eliminated for the gospel. I don't need to imagine some temporary cultural relief now. Though so I would love to have it. What I, what I need, what I should pray for, live for, is pressing through that temptation to walk away, give up, shut everything down. How do I do that? I know whom I've believed. I know my God. He is righteous. He will bring justice for his people they cry to him day and night and they ought to he loves it and he will not delay long over them yes we wait but when it comes do you honestly think honestly in your heart of hearts do you imagine that you're going to see Christ and you're going to say but I have something against you I suffered greatly And you did not relieve it. No. No. You know what we're going to say? How I wasted so much suffering in self absorbed pursuit of some earthly relief. How I wasted it. Lord, I'm so sorry I didn't honor you in a greater way through the difficulties a lost heart sometimes and I shouldn't have because you told me right here you would bring about a day when all things will be righteous and it will be eternal anybody here want to define eternity i don't think so it doesn't even compare with a petty little human circumstance illustrated in a parable that's our that's our adrenaline that's our boost every day Lord Jesus we are sorry for for our small perspective we can become so tunnel visioned and smallish and myopic because we're afraid and we're timid and our theology is not grounded sometimes because we won't believe it. it. might even be good teaching but we turn it into something vacuous because we won't believe it. But you've said here to ponder it, to let it do its work, let it secrete the proper adrenaline we need, the spiritual encouragement and truth we need that you do hear your elect day and night. You hear us. We pray that you come. We pray you do it your way and your timing. And in the meantime, so grateful for these truths that are given to us by your Spirit, and they, they cause us to be encouraged, and they strengthen our faith. There are so much more than the cheap imitations of that which we find relief in over and over again. Lord, keep us from lesser glories and help us to fix our eyes on you, our, our wonderful trailblazer, the perfecter of our faith. Thank you for a church that loves the truth. Help us to live it and encourage one another in it. And may we not lose courage, conviction. But may we strengthen it with theology. Truth about you, truth you gave us. And just believe it. You said you would bring it about. You don't lie. and You love your people. And so we want to trust you. Strengthen our faith in these things, in the waiting. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.